well, last week, just to remind you, we, we spent some time talking about this phrase, halal, yah, hallelujah. It appeared multiple times in uh, chapter 19, and it was a response to the fall of Babylon. And not only the fall of Babylon, but the fall of Antichrist, the fall of the false prophet, and this end of evil in the world. Uh, we're now at that point in the book where Jesus Christ has returned. He's returned to earth. And we've had the battle of Armageddon. We've seen what that looks like. It's not much of a battle. It's completely lopsided, one-sided. And with the word of his mouth, the sword of his mouth, Jesus Christ wipes out the enemies of God. All the wicked, all who've aligned themselves with Antichrist are destroyed, literally destroyed. And their souls end up in Hades. There's, that's a waiting place for them, a holding place for them. They don't go directly to hell. Hell's yet to come in this book, and we're going to see it shortly. But this is what's happened in chapter 19. And again, all the wicked, all the evil are destroyed. Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into hell where they will stay for eternity. Um, and there has to be something that happens there. They have to receive um, immortal bodies, and we'll learn more about that in this chapter. In other words, for them to live eternally in hell, remember they're human beings, Antichrist and the false prophet. They're not spirit beings, they're human beings. They have to receive immortal bodies so that they can live for eternity and suffer for eternity. That seems to be the indication here because if they have bodies like this, and if hell is real, and I believe it is, and hell is as horrific as it is, then these bodies aren't going to last in that kind of torment. So they will receive immortal bodies. So chapter 19 was kind of a downer if you're on the wrong side of the winning scale. If you're the loser in that battle, you, this isn't good news. For us, it's great news because evil is destroyed. We saw in chapter 19 these, these verses, the beast, Antichrist, was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse, Jesus Christ. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So that's the downer part of chapter 19. It's a downer for those who end up deceased and placed in Hades, awaiting their future and final judgment. But the good news for us is the beast is destroyed. He and the false prophet are cast into hell, and their deceptive influence gets removed. And if you can imagine, with all the evil individuals, all the wicked, all the unredeemed removed from the earth, you're beginning to see something dramatic happen to earth. It's a different context. It's a different environment. If suddenly, you know, if, when we talk about the rapture of the church, it's the picture of all the, the righteous being removed, leaving nothing but the wicked. This is kind of the reverse. It's all the wicked being reversed, removed, leaving nothing but who? The redeemed the righteous. So it's a reverse. It's something incredible happening. But there's one guy we still have to deal with, and he's part of that unholy trinity, and it's Satan. What's the fate of Satan? Where does he go? Um, he's kind of the crux behind this whole thing. He's the one who started it all. Uh, he rebelled against God. Uh, he caused, in a great way, the fall, tempting of Adam and Eve. Um, they, they had a choice. They didn't have to do what he said, but they took the bait, they bought the lie, and they fell. And so what happens to this guy? That's what this chapter is all about. Now, 
this chapter is extremely important. It's extremely exciting. It's got a lot of good news, and it's extremely controversial. And we've kind of touched on this before, and we're going to go back to visit it a little bit this morning just because I need to clarify in case you forgot or if you weren't here for the sessions we dealt with this. It's a highly debated chapter because of one particular thing, and it's the millennial kingdom. The, the aspect, the topic of the idea of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And how we approach it, it all goes back to your interpretive style. We did this probably week one, week two of this series 20 weeks ago. How you interpret the book of Revelation is going to dictate how you interpret this particular chapter. And this is a critical chapter in the book. It's a, kind of the crux of the book, the return of Christ and the setting up of the kingdom of Christ on earth. So you have these different interpretive styles, and there's always been debate on this chapter. There's always been debate on this book, and it continues. Um, I'm teaching it from one particular viewpoint. It's the one that our church holds, and we're not alone. This isn't just Christ Chapel's view. This is a very prolific view, but it's not the only view. And so we're going to briefly look at this. Here's the, here's the idea, and we've touched on this before. Do you take this chapter literally or figuratively? And that's, that's always at the core of this debate about the book of Revelation, and in particular, this chapter. Do you take it literally or do you take it figuratively? Um, and how you answer that will have huge implications. Part of what drives me crazy is it's, it's like an either or. It's, it's one way or the other. It's black or white. It's like these two things are diametrically opposed. It, it, can't, it has to be either figurative. It has to be all literal. It can't be a little bit of both. I tend to believe Revelation has a little bit of both in it. And the, the hard part is deciding which is which. So here's, here's what comes out of these different looks at the book of Revelation. Are we in the millennium or is it yet to come? That's a huge question. Because there are groups who believe we are already in the millennium. The millennium is an allegorical, figurative statement. It's not a literal thousand years. We're living in the millennium, and it began with the coming of Christ. And it will end with the second coming of Christ. So we're already in it. It's not a thousand years. It's just a long period of time, so we're in the millennium. There are others who say, like us, that it's yet to come. The millennium is out in the future. And then there are those who say it doesn't even exist. It's totally figurative, it's totally allegorical, and there is no millennium. It's, it, it, it's not out there. It's just an allegorical, spiritualized statement about things that God is going to do or things that God already has done. Well, and then there's, is, there, is it nothing but a spiritual metaphor? So when you read this book and you get into chapter 20 and you see all this fantastic stuff, do you just spiritualize it? And then the other one is, is it all things that John is writing about from his first century perspective? Now, here's what that means. John is writing in the first century, and there are those who say it's not even John writing, and it's some guy anonymously writing as John. But whoever it is, he's writing in the first century, and he's writing to these seven first century churches, and he's writing about first century contexts. What's the first century context? Rome is in charge. They're, they're the big dog in the block. They're the bully. They're in charge of everything. They rule the world as such. And John is in exile on the island of Patmos by order of Nero, the, the emperor. And so he's writing to these churches, but he's having to write in secrecy, and he's having to write kind of cryptically. And so he's using 
Babylon to refer to Rome because if he says Rome, he's going to get in further trouble with Nero. And when he talks about Nero and he wants to say something negative about Nero, he refers to him as Antichrist. So that view is still out there. There are those who believe that this is a first century author writing about first century events and he's putting them in this apocalyptic verbiage to hide what he's really talking about to those outside of the church. Does that make sense? It makes sense. It just doesn't gel with me. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense from a biblical perspective. And I think it relegates this book to really of no value to me. It's a book only of value to those in the first century. And yet the church fathers included this book in the canon of scripture for a reason, because they believed it's prophetic. They believe it has truths that have yet to be fulfilled, and that's the way we interpret it. That's the way we read it. So, again, it goes back to this idea of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Is it literal or is it figurative? Is it really going to happen? Well, here are the three views, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. I'm not going to dig into these because we've already done it, but here's a brief summary of what they mean. Premillennial, we believe in the literal reign of Christ on earth. He will come back to earth. He will set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. He will sit on the throne of David, and he will rule for a literal thousand years. That's what we believe. Postmillennials believe we're already in the millennium. And, and their take on this is that when Jesus Christ came, he set up his kingdom. It's the message that John the Baptist preached. It's the message that Jesus preached. The kingdom has arrived. The kingdom is here. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. So they're saying we're already in the kingdom. He's already ruling. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And so we're in this indiscriminate, undeterminable time frame called the millennium. It's not a thousand years, literally. It's figurative. And then it'll, it'll end when he comes back. And so when, when that view becomes most popular is in times of goodness and greatness, so I, I, did a, I did a thing earlier uh, this year about uh, these different views, a one-night Thursday night deal where I kind of talked about these views, and I gave a chart, and I tried to map out on that chart kind of the timeline of American history, because it was too hard to go back into European history, but we looked at American history, and if you, if you map American history, you can see when post-millennialism becomes really, really popular is when things are going really, really well. And when it really hit its peak was during the Great Awakening in the 1800s. The Great Awakening was a time of revival all across the, the country, and people were coming to faith in Christ in droves, and it looked like a time of incredible spiritual awakening in the country. And guess what? The post-millennial view became dominant. Because what post-millennials tend to believe and tend to teach is that we will usher in the kingdom by Christianizing society. We will grow to such a degree that we Christianize the majority of the people living on the planet and Jesus Christ will come back as a result. So when things are going great, like during the Great Awakening, guess what? Post-millennialism becomes the dominant view because it looks like it's working and he's going to come back. What happened right after the Great Awakening? The Civil War. Oops, it's not as nice as we thought it was. What happened right after the Civil War? Not long after the Civil War, the First World War. What happened not long after that? The Second World War. Suddenly, postmillennialism took a nosedive. Why? Because it doesn't look like we're redeeming the culture. Postmillennialism post is not a popular view right now. Why? Look at society. Does it look like we're redeeming the culture? 
does it look like we're Christianizing America or the world? No. So you see these views ebb and flow, and that's true of all the views. A lot of it's contextual. A lot of it has to do with what's going on in the society. What's amillennial? It really doesn't mean they don't believe in a millennium. It means they don't believe it's a literal millennium. Okay, so these are your three views, three dominant views. And again, they rise and fall based on context, based on culture, based on what's happening in the world. But our view, the one I'm teaching from, is premillennial. We believe Jesus Christ will come to earth. Pre means before the millennium, before the thousand-year reign. And I believe, and our church believes, along with many others, that Jesus Christ will reign for a thousand years during the millennium. So let's take a look at this chapter, and it's, it's jam-packed. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the pit. And he shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Six different times in this chapter, we hear the phrase, a thousand years. It seems like it's kind of important. Anytime in Scripture you hear repetitive statements, repetitive phrases, it's usually repetitive for a reason. So we see a thousand years repeated over and over again in this chapter. Okay, so I, th I think that it's got some meat to it. But here's, here's some questions we got to look at when we think about the different interpretive styles and the different viewpoints of this chapter. Are we to take all the imagery we just read literally? Now, what irritates me is that those who don't hold the view that we hold, and again, there are a lot of them out there, Bible-believing, solid Christians, going to heaven, believe in Jesus Christ. This isn't a salvific issue, but it's an important issue. But they believe, because we, take, we say we take the chapter literally, that we, take, we must take everything literally. In other words, they, they hold us to this kind of degree of importance that... Okay, if you're a literalist, it's all got to be literal. And you can see where that might go. So does the angel have an actual chain? When this takes place sometime in the future, hadn't happened yet, but John's seeing into the future. If it takes place, is an angel going to come from heaven, a literal angel carrying a literal chain? I don't know. But the question you have to ask is, why couldn't he? How big's the chain? I don't know. I don't know how big Satan is. But see, you get bogged down in, well, okay, then what kind of chain? What's it made of? How big are the links? How heavy is it? How long is it? And you get caught up in minutia. I don't think that's the point of the chapter. Does he literally seize Satan and toss him in a pit? In other words, when this happens, sometime in the future, does he literally grab Satan and throw him in a pit? I don't know. I don't think it's important. I don't think that's the part that we need to worry about being literal or not. The thing that's literal is Satan gets defeated. Satan does get cast somewhere. Satan does get removed. Is it a literal pit or hole in the earth? In other words, is it, there's a big hole in the earth, and is it bottomless? Does it go straight down and never stop? Well, if that's true, it goes through the other end, right? It goes through the other side of earth. So is it literal? Probably not. Is it a pit? Probably so. What kind of pit? Probably not something that we can relate to, probably because it's in a dimension we can't see, we don't understand. 
So we're already beginning to see that there are some spiritual and physical issues going on here that are beyond our comprehension because we're talking about spiritual and physical things. It, It says that Satan is a dragon. Is he a literal dragon? Probably not. I had one of the Thursday night guys when we were talking about some of this about the dragon. He began a study on dragons and he went to Wikipedia. Um, really bad way to do a Bible study, just, just telling you. And he found all this information on dragons and he started funneling it to me and it just about put my spine in a knot about dragons and, you know, Chinese history about dragons. And he goes, why couldn't it be a real dragon? And he takes the form of a real dragon and, and okay, stop. First of all, stop using Wikipedia, go to your Bible. And if you can find that in the Bible, I'll listen to you, but it, I don't think he's a real dragon. That's not the point. It's, it's a metaphor. It's a description that is in their minds evil. It's big. It's bad. It's foreboding. It's not a literal dragon. But then it asks, we ask the question, it, well, then is he confined for a thousand years? Is that literal? See, all of this begins to pop up. What's literal? What's figurative? What's literal? What's figurative? We tend to believe, as far as this last question, that this is literal because we're not given any reason to think that it's not. The idea of him being a dragon, you look at that and go, probably not because there really aren't dragons that we know of. But is there such a thing as a thousand years? Yes. Then why couldn't this be literal? Why does it have to be figurative? I'm not given any reason in the text to believe that it's anything but a literal thousand year reign. But see, this idea that you got to take it all literally or you take it all figuratively is a false dichotomy. It's something that I don't think is fair to put on us in terms of our interpretive view or on this passage in terms of how it needs to be interpreted. Literal and figurative are not antithetical. They are not at war with one another. It's not an either or black and white situation because at its core, Revelation is a spiritual book. This entire book, the Bible is a spiritual book. It is the revelation of God. It's about spiritual things at its core because guess what? This is all temporary. This is not really real. Now, I don't mean we don't exist and this is not three-dimensional. You can't touch it. It is, but it is one dimension that we can see, but there's more to this. As a matter of fact, this is all going away, as we'll see. This, this thing doesn't last. This thing, as hard as we are trying to save it, will not be around one day. This thing called earth, this thing called the universe, it's all going to be remade by God. And so at the end of the day, it's all about spiritual things being communicated to us as human physical beings in a way that we can understand. So what we have in this book are physical and spiritual coming together in a major way. What was Jesus Christ becoming man? Spiritual and physical coming together. What do we see in this book? What do we see in the chapter that we're looking at this morning? Physical and spiritual coming together. And some of it is going to be taken literally. Some of it's going to be figurative. But we got to really stick to the fact that Satan is a spiritual being, but he is alive and well, and he roams the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. If you don't believe in Satan, that's your prerogative. But guess what? He doesn't go away because you don't believe in him. He's real. Have you ever seen him? No. But he's real. And the book seems to teach us that he's real. Hell is real. 
I may not like the concept of hell. I may not like the idea that people that I don't even know are going to spend eternity in torment. I may not like that, but guess what? It doesn't matter what I like. It's what the Bible teaches. It's what Jesus taught. It's what the apostles taught. It's what the Old Testament taught. Hell is a real place, but it's outside of physical time and space. Have you ever been there? No. Do you ever want to go there? I hope not. But it's real. It's a real place. Where is it? I don't have a clue. Is it down? Maybe. But it's in a realm that I can't see. Heaven's real. If heaven's not real, guys, why are we even here? But it's a spiritual place. Has anybody been to heaven? Have any of you been to heaven? Probably not. But does that make it not real? No. I've never been to Hawaii, but I don't doubt the existence of Hawaii. So it's a real place. And, and so all through here, we see this, and these are things we can't see, things we can't touch, things we have never visited. You know, if you go back and read Hebrews chapter 11, it, over and over again, it talks about Abraham and others having faith in things they never saw. That's what made them righteous. It was their faith in the invisible and the unknown and the unseen and the as yet fulfilled. So a lot of what we're seeing here, guys, is this idea of, again, physical and spiritual coming together in a major way. And here's poor John, and I really do feel for John, trying to convey all this in a way that you and I as physical beings can understand. And he's painting these word pictures for us so that we as finite human beings can understand the infinite, the invisible, the incredible, but it doesn't mean they're not real. So this idea of the physical reign of Christ on the earth, the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth, is, is difficult to understand. There's questions about why. Why would he do that? Why would he come back to earth? What, what's the purpose of it? And we're going to try to look at that, but it doesn't go away just because we can't understand it. So the Satan, the pit, millennial kingdom, it's all real. It's all going to happen. It's all part of this as we study this book. So everything in this is real as far as we can tell. Some of it is presented to us figuratively so we can understand it and get our hands around it. Again, is it a real angel with a real chain throwing him into a real pit that can be seen by human eyes? Probably not. It's probably spiritual in its dimension and its effect. But it, again, is real. It is going to happen. So I want to show you something, and this is kind of an aside, and I almost took this out because it's, um, it's somewhat dangerous. It's, it's not the best way to study Scripture. Um, but it's not a wrong way to study scriptures. So what I want to show you is when you study the scriptures, if you'll take the effort to go back and look at w the original language that the book was written in, this particular book, because it was written in the first century, was written in Greek. We're reading it in what? English. So it's been translated. But if you go back and you look at it in the original Greek and you look at those words, not only what they mean, but you look at what they look like and how they sound, some interesting things begin to happen. I want to show you something. As I was studying this and went back and started looking at these words in the Greek, something I saw that really impacted me in a positive way. I am not in any way saying this is what John intended when he wrote the book, but it could be. So here's what I'm saying. Look at the wording that he uses when he describes the fall of Satan and the seizing of Satan. He's very specific in his word choice. He says, the angel seized the dragon, he bound the dragon, he threw him into a pit, he shut it, and he sealed it. So he's got these words that he's using, very staccato in their presentation. He did this, 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 and this. Here's, here's what I discovered, and I, I'm calling this dragons, devils, and serpents on mine. 
you remember the Wizard of Oz, you know, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. I, that phrase just popped in my head when I started looking at this and I discovered it. Because the first word he uses is seize. Now look at the word in the Greek. It's krateo. Krateo is how you say it. Emphasis on the O, krateo. Here's the second word. He bound him, deo. The third word, he threw him, balo. The fourth word, shut him in, klio. The next word, sealed, fregatzo, epano. Do you, do you see a, something being repeated here? Something ha happening here? Now, there's a word that, or a sound that is being repeated all throughout. Now, remember, this is being read probably to the seven churches out loud, how most letters were read in those days, read to the church, the congregation, and they're hearing these words, they're verbs, but they all end in the same word. Many Greek verbs end in the same sound. But it, I think it's important, his word choice and how these words end, because it goes on, it says, also Satan can no longer deceive, planao. Again, there's that O sound. How about this? Until the thousand years were what? Fulfilled, teleo. And then he must be released, luo. So there's this repetitive phrase. Now, here's what it did to me as I studied it. I, I, I started thinking about this, and I thought, that word, I've heard that word before. It's all through the Old Testament. It's also in the New Testament. Oh, oh Lord, oh Lord my God, oh Jehovah. It, it's, it's an expression, an acclamation of something. It's always got emotion. It's always an exclamation of joy or some kind of a gut feel that you express. You know, we may say, oh my God. Um, oh my God, I won the lottery. Oh my God, the Cowboys won. Uh, oh my God. You know, it's an expression, but in the Greek, it's, it's a very strong, it's a word. It's not just a sound, it's a word. Depending on the context, it can convey spirited approval, importance, joy, etc. So as I'm reading this and I'm looking at these words, I'm thinking, okay, that's being read to me in the Greek. And I'm hearing that, that, that sound over and over again as it's describing what? The fall of Satan. And here's what came to my mind. This verse in Romans, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Oh my God, look at what he's doing. And I have to believe those Greeks those, those people hearing in Greek, a language they knew, they read, they understood, and they're hearing these words describing the fall of Satan, all ending in the exclamation sound of, oh, must have felt the same thing. Oh, my God. Look what he's doing. And, and the only reason I'm even sharing this with you is that's what I want you to get out of this chapter. I want you to say, oh, my God. Look at what you're doing. Look at what you've promised to do. Look at what you are going to do because we're seeing, guys, in this chapter, the elimination of Satan. Now think about that. Getting rid of the one who is our greatest enemy, who causes us the greatest torment, who tempts us, who deceives us, who lies to us. He, he controls everything in this world, including everybody who's outside of Christ. And here we see God Almighty eliminating him getting rid of him, seizing him, binding him, throwing him, casting him, sealing him. And that sound, oh, 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 is repeated. Now, again, I'm showing you this because this is, I'm studying this passage. This is what jumps out at me. I found it in no commentary. Now, word of warning. Anytime you're studying the scriptures and you find something and it's not in a commentary, it's usually like, maybe that shouldn't be something you should make a big deal out of. 
But I think what's important here for me is not that I'm going off into the balloonosphere, but that's how studying the passage impacted me. It got me to realize with all that I see going on, the wiping out of all the evil and all that, it's, it's like, get the emphasis back on who deserves the emphasis. It is God Almighty. This book is about God Almighty doing things that he's promised to do. Sending of his son the first time, sending of his son the second time, and now eliminating evil from the earth. And what we see as we go on is that he's going to get rid of him for a thousand years. He's going to put him in confinement for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. The question is, why? Why would he do that? Why would he take the time to put him in captivity for a thousand years? Why would he just cast him into hell along with Antichrist and the false prophet? The, the, the easy answer to that question is we don't know why God does what God does. His ways are unfathomable. His ways are not our ways. I don't know why God does it this way, but it seems to teach that that's what he's going to do. He's going to bind him in the bottomless pit, which is not hell. It's Hades. It's a different place. And he's going to put him there for a thousand years, bound, locked away and sealed. Same word used in the early chapters of the seals on the scroll. It's a a wax seal that's got the impression of the Almighty in it, and nobody can open it up except God Almighty. So he's locked away for a thousand years. Why? So he can no longer deceive the nations. What is the primary function and role of Satan right now? Deceiving the nations. Now, there are those who believe that Satan is already bound. He was bound when Jesus Christ died on the cross. I have a really hard time buying that concept because scriptures doesn't seem to teach that he's bound right now. Was he defeated? Yes, but he's still alive and well. He's allowed to roam. He's allowed to do what he wants to do. We're told by Paul that he roams like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That doesn't sound like he's bound to me. And I know because of the effect I see on people's lives and in my own life that he's out there tempting, deceiving. He's doing all the things that Satan has always done. He is free to do anything and everything. And we see it all the way through the seven years of the tribulation. But this is a different kind of binding, guys. This is him being literally bound away where he can no longer deceive the nations for, seven, for a thousand year period of time. So no more Satan. Get this through your head. No demons. No demons tempting anybody. They've been dealt with. Antichrist and false prophet are out of the picture. So think of that a thousand year period of time with no Satan, no demons, no wickedness on the earth, no evil people on the earth, no unredeemed on the earth. Think of what that's like. Because he goes on and he says, then I saw thrones and seated on, on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the Antichrist. There's going to be people on this earth when Jesus Christ comes back to reign, human beings. Who are they? And what are they going to do? Well, it says they're going to judge with them. And we know from other passages of Scripture, if you put it all together, we know from Daniel chapter 7, the Old Testament saints are going to be there. They're going to come back in their resurrected bodies. They're already with God. I believe they come back with the church when they hit the, hit the ground at Battle of Armageddon. So they're going to be there in this kingdom for a thousand years. So that includes David. That includes Abraham. That includes Isaac. That includes all the prophets. Go look at Hebrews chapter 11. You'll get a list of some of the people that are going to be there, including Rahab the harlot. 
Anybody who would place faith in God and the promises of God in the Old Testament context are going to be there. So they're going to be there. We also know from Matthew 19, all the apostles are going to be there and they're going to rule. They're going to sit on 12 thrones ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. We also know from 2 Timothy 2.12 that the church is going to be there. We're going to be there. We're all going to be there. We, us, and the saints, the Old Testament saints and the apostles are going to be there with our resurrected bodies because we received them at the rapture. And we're going to come back with these glorified, resurrected, redeemed bodies. We're not going to be human like we are now. We're going to have bodies, but we're going to be different. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be as Christ is in that sense. But you're also going to have all the saints that were martyred during the tribulation. All those who died at the hands of Antichrist are going to come back and we're going to rule with Christ. We're going to rule jointly. That's why he says the souls of all those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads, they came to life, which means they received their resurrected bodies and they came to reign with Christ for how long? A thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until later. And we'll look at that in a second. Until the thousand years is up. This is the first resurrection. What is the first resurrection? He's speaking about the millennial kingdom, a thousand years. There's a beginning, there's an end. At the beginning, all those saints who were martyred during the tribulation will be resurrected. They will come back with their resurrected bodies and they will rule alongside us and with Christ and the apostles and the Old Testament saints in that resurrection. And he says, over such, the second death has no power. Second death is hell. They'll never have to worry about going to hell. They'll never have to worry about that judgment. And they will reign with him for how long? A thousand years. There it is again. A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. How long is this book talking about? A thousand years. Is it literal? I believe it is. Because that to me, to me, and others makes the most sense when you study this passage. So the first resurrection, again, what's it talking about? Keep the context. What's the context? We're talking about a thousand years that has a beginning and an end. So there's two resurrections mentioned. The one we just talked about, all those tribulation saints who were martyred by Antichrist will be resurrected as soon as this event begins, the thousand years, and they will reign with him. But there's a second one. One takes place at the beginning, one takes place at the end. The resurrection of the unredeemed dead. Remember, where are all the unredeemed of the world? They're dead. They're gone. They've either died earlier or they've died as a result of this defeat that comes about from God. They're all done away with. They died at the battle of Armageddon or they're going to die at the battle that takes place at the end of the thousand years. Now, I've given you a little chart and we're going to look at it in a second that hopefully clarifies some of this. I actually gave you two charts. But bear with me as we work our way through this. So the context of the first resurrection mentioned here is the millennial kingdom. The millennium. Thousand year reign of Christ. That's the context. So here's the first timeline that's part of your notes. And I'm just going to blow through this because all I want to do is establish an order or a sequence of events. We've already looked at the fall of Babylon, chapter 19. We saw the marriage of the Lamb. We saw the marriage supper of the Lamb. The celebration following that event. Then Jesus Christ comes back with the church, with the tribulation saints from heaven. We come back, and then we have the battle of Armageddon, where he slays all the wicked on the earth. He captures Antichrist, the false prophet, sends him to hell. All the wicked are destroyed by the sword of his mouth. Then what begins? There's the first resurrection, and it's going to lead into the millennial kingdom of the tribulation saints, all those who died during the tribulation. 
then Christ establishes his kingdom, a literal throne in a literal Jerusalem on a literal earth, reigning for a literal thousand years. That's what I believe this teaches. And then at the end of that, we're going to see in a second, Satan gets released. And that raises the question, why? Because he's going to lead a rebellion. See, he's been bound for a thousand years and he's not been able to deceive the nations. What happens as soon as he gets out? He deceives the nations. His character doesn't change in a thousand years. He's still Satan. He still does the same thing. And they rebel and they're destroyed by God. And every one of them are cast into Hades. Why? Because they're waiting for hell. Because something else has to happen. Satan goes to hell. They go to Hades. And then there's the second resurrection of all the, the, the unredeemed, all the wicked, all, the, all those outside of Christ who have ever lived on this planet. Every one of them will be resurrected. And what's going to happen is they're going to get glorified bodies. You may have never thought about this, but you get a glorified body because you're in Christ. They're going to get a glorified body too. Why? Because they're going to get judged. And as soon as that judgment takes place, they get cast into hell. Now, why do they need that glorified body? How long is hell? Eternity. It's forever. They're going to be tortured forever. How are they going to be tortured? Physically, mentally, emotionally, forever. This body will not survive that. So they're going to get glorified bodies so that they can suffer for eternity. Again, you may not like that. They may not sound very tasteful to you, but that is God's plan. That's God's will. And God is just and righteous. And all that he does is just and righteous. And so these individuals will suffer for eternity. Everybody is, who's ever lived is going to get resurrected. Everybody's going to get a new body. But what we have to remember is there's lots of resurrections. And one of the confusing, confusing things about this chapter is when it says first resurrection. We know there are other resurrections, right? Look at 1 Corinthians. If, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, which he is, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, in other words, really the first resurrection is who? Jesus Christ. And as Paul goes on to say, if he's not resurrected, we're all wasting our time. Let's go home. He's the first resurrection. And then we follow him. So also all in Christ shall be made alive, but each in his order. There is a sequence of these resurrections. We, the church, get resurrected when? At the rapture. We get our new bodies then and we go to be with him. Then we come back with him. But then you're going to have that first resurrection in context of the millennial. And then you're going to have the one at the end. There's a, there's a series of resurrections, and that's really what the, the next little chart I created is meant to help you understand. You've got the resurrection of Christ, which leads to the church age, the rapture and the resurrection of the church, which leads to the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, the first resurrection of all the martyrs, they're going to get their resurrected bodies. Then we have the thousand-year reign of Christ. Satan gets released. And the second resurrection of all those individuals who are going to be judged. All those who've, been, who've rebelled, all those who've rejected Jesus Christ over the centuries will get resurrected from the dead and they will be prepared for judgment. So that's why some of this gets so confusing and, and, and some of your heads are about to explode already. But all, I think all God's trying to tell John is that some great things are going to happen. But some, some really bad things are going to happen, right? Some bad things are going to happen to bad people, people who have rejected Jesus Christ, people you know, people I know, people we work with. And here's, here's the real fascinating thing about this chapter that I think answers the question, why would God bind Satan for a thousand years? Take him out of the picture. Now think about this. He's gone. 
the tempter's gone, the deceiver's gone, all the wicked have been wiped out. You're going to have two groups of people living on the earth during the 1,000-year reign of Christ. You're going to have all the redeemed who've come back to earth, including us, the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, all with their redeemed, glorified bodies. And you're going to have everybody who came to faith in Christ who's still alive, who survived the tribulation. In other words, they weren't martyred. So the 144,000 Jews and all those that they led to Christ, those that are still alive are going to be there and they're going to be what? Still human. So you're going to have redeemed people, glorified body people, and you're going to have human beings living on the earth. What will those human beings do? What human beings always do? Eat and work and do what we do and marry and have children just like we've always had children. And nothing tells us that anything changes in regard to what we already know about human beings and the birthing of children. Every time a child is born, they are born with what? A sin nature. It's passed down through Adam. So every one of your children was born with a sin nature, and it probably took you two months to figure out how true that really is. You know, as soon as they got big enough and old enough and smart enough to grab a toy from another kid, you, their sin nature began to show itself. Every child is born with a sin nature. Guess what? During the millennial kingdom, children will be born. They will not be born Christian. Even though the people on earth are redeemed and their parents are redeemed, doesn't mean they're born Christian any more than my children were born Christian because my wife and I were Christian. See, something is going to continue. Yes, Christ is on his throne. Christ is ruling in righteousness. Christ is the perfect king. But it doesn't mean that everybody who pops out of the womb is automatically a believer in Jesus Christ. There is still going to be a sin nature, even though, guess what? Satan's out of the way. And you can't blame Satan for your sin. People will sin during this time period, I believe. Otherwise, why does there need to be a judge? See, Jesus Christ is the judge. What is there a need for a judge if there's nothing to judge? He will judge, and we're told he's going to judge with a rod of iron. He will deal with sin immediately, effectively. So I think sin will be diminished during this thousand years, but it will still be there. See, people will still be doing what people are tending to do. They do what they feel led to do. And while Jesus will deal with it effectively and quickly, it still lets us know that sin, the sin nature and human nature doesn't change, even though Christ is ruling in righteousness, even though he's sitting on the throne. Because we see in verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan gets released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Here we go again. It's the battle of Armageddon all over again. So for a thousand years, he's been chained up. He gets released. And how in the world does he get that many people to come and gather with him? Well, it's a thousand years of people having babies, and there's a lot of people on the earth. That's a lot of generations. So millions of people have been born on earth with their unredeemed spirits. Some probably come to faith, but many don't just like today. And the ones who don't will immediately, as soon as he gets out, they, they, get, they get sucked into the void again. They, get, they take the bait of Satan and they form an army. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Why does he put them away? I think in a, in a, in a real way, it's to show that Satan is really not going to be the problem. Even with Satan out of the way, sin is going to be on the earth. Men are still prone to sins. Men are still born with sin natures. Because once he shows up, he has no problem deceiving them and establishing an army. So what's going on here? Gog and Magog. There's a lot of debate over who Gog and Magog is. Is it Russia? Is it China? I don't know. We're not told. And it doesn't really matter as far as I'm concerned. 
because they're not the point. Ezekiel 38 and 39 talks about this. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. It goes on, talks about Gog again, Gog and Magog, who are they? We're not really sure. Nobody really knows. The point is they are representative of all that's evil. Once again, evil manifests itself anytime Satan is around. We don't know who they are, but they, they're placeholders really, as far as I'm concerned. They're a, they're a phrase that is used by John to illustrate something that's evil. Nations are going to align themselves with Satan and they're going to try to defeat God. They're the unredeemed. Even during a thousand years of Christ's righteous reign in the earth, there will still be unredeemed. And that is, that is more amazing for me to think about than the fact that there will be a period of time where there will be no wicked on the earth. See, human beings are human beings. And without the redemptive work of Christ, and Christ is not going to force people to accept him as Savior. He will be Lord and King. They will honor him as such, but it doesn't mean that they're believers. And so Satan shows up and they follow him. And it says, they marched over a broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven. From who? God. God wipes them out. And this will be the final, the ultimate getting rid of all who are wicked. And he consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. He joins his buddies, the unholy trinity, antichrist, and the false prophet. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, Oh my, look what God does. Look what God does. And the thing that jumps out at me in this, guys, is that one of the pictures we see here is Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of David, ruling from the throne of David in Jerusalem is a promise answered or fulfilling everything that God had said to David. He told David, this is going to happen. It's what the Jews had longed for, prayed for. Orthodox Jews are still longing for this day when their Messiah will come and set up his kingdom on earth and Jerusalem will be the main show. But here's the deal. That thousand years is a picture of that being fulfilled. And guess what? People still will reject him as king. They'll still follow the enemy. Well, we're going to end with this because I'm going to pick this part up next week, but I do want you to see the contrast. What did we just see? Satan gets released. He gets all these nations to join him in an attempted battle to take over God and take over the kingdom of Christ. And he fails. He's destroyed. He's thrown into hell. They're all wiped out. And then John just switches gears and he says, then I saw a transitional statement. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. See, Satan is being diminished. Satan is being eliminated. But who's sitting on his throne and who sent the fire? God Almighty, which brings me back to, oh my, that's the kind of God I have. That's the power of the God that we worship. That's the God you say you believe in. That's the God who can take care of the problems you face today in your life, whatever they may be. My hope is that you would walk out of here today and you would go, oh my, what an incredible God. Oh, how great is my God. How unsearchable are his ways. How unfathomable. I may not get all of this, I may not even believe all of this, but you know what? It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. It's whether I believe my God can do whatever he says he can do. So here's your questions. The believers who are alive when Christ returns will enter the millennial kingdom in their human state and they'll bear children. So how does this explain the presence of those who will rebel against Satan? That's always been a question. Where do these people come from? And we kind of already answered that, but here's the key question. What does it tell you about man's sin nature? 
See, there are people who say, well, if Jesus Christ would appear in front of me, I'd believe. Not necessarily. Jesus Christ appeared before a lot of people and they didn't believe. Jesus Christ did miracles in front of people and they didn't believe. Jesus Christ did amazing things. He resurrected from the dead and people didn't believe. So what does it tell you about our sin nature? Secondly, the scene of Satan being cast into hell is followed immediately by the scene of God sitting on his throne. Why do you see this as significant? What's the significance of that contrast? Satan being defeated and diminished, God being elevated and glorified. And how should that change your view of God as you enter into your day to day? Oh my, how great is my God. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their attentiveness. And I pray that you would take all of this imagery, all of that we just talked about, Father, it's a lot. And you would help us to boil it all down into one thing, how great is our God, that we would say, oh, that we would say, oh Lord God, you are majestic. Oh Lord God, you are mighty. Oh Lord God, you are a promise-keeping God. Oh, Lord God, I can trust you. Oh, Lord God, I don't understand you sometimes, but I trust you. Oh, Lord God, I don't understand the concept of hell. I don't even like the concept of hell, but I trust you. Oh, Lord God, I lean on you. I give my life to you. I want to do what you would have me to do. Father, may we be driven to you and see you seated on your throne in full control of our lives, and not only of our lives, but the future. We pray this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.